So uh, good to be here with you again tonight. Uh, just want to check and make sure sound is okay. Is it okay back there? Great, thank you. Um, so I've been reflecting on the talk for tonight on speaking and uh, reflecting a little about what's come so far, what we're doing here. And, uh, you know, we started uh, a few days ago, Alexis was speaking, and he talked about, there was a phrase about being with what is, being with what is. And that's, on, on a certain level, that's all we're doing here, is being with what is. It's so simple, it's difficult. We're just learning how to be with what is. And because it's so simple, it's difficult. Uh, Dara was talking about some of the ways the difficulties manifest. And they manifest in the hindrances, or the obstacles sometimes also called that we can begin to recognize and we don't have to just react to or believe the hindrances, but we can start to become aware of them <clears throat> and we can awaken through them, not by just getting rid of them. And it means, what that means to me partly is that I'm not trying to get rid of my desire or my aversion uh, or things like that. I'm just trying to be aware of it rather than just believing it. It's just a state of mind and heart, consciousness. And, you know, in my daily life, it's like, oh, sure, I don't want this at all. I'm leaving. I'm done with this. I'm, I'm aversive, right? And, and I tend to be a little bit of an aversive type. Uh, uh, but I don't have to believe the version when I'm aware of it. And so the awareness starts to bring a certain amount of space to the experience and helps us learn how to be with what is, not be bound to what is. And Dara had a beautiful piece at the end of her talk last night. She said, when there's genuine compassion, and it arises, it moves through us as grace. And it brings together a tenderness and a fearlessness both. And that's a beautiful understanding of compassion, of real compassion, of alive compassion. <clears throat> it's grace. It's, and it's not a word, it's not, that's not a big Buddhist word, grace. I haven't seen the Buddha speaking about grace so much. But, but I like the word very much. It's a beautiful word, grace. And, you know, if somebody is graceful, it's, there's something beautiful there. Sometimes you, one can go see the arts, and somebody is being, a dancer is being graceful, and it's as if they're not doing anything, but they do it so well, you don't see how hard they've worked to do it because they're just graceful. And it's the same with a a really good museum or, or, you know, 
you know, I always I tend to like um, uh, Pablo Casals, the cellist, and you hear him play, and it's just graceful, and it's. But if you try to play it, it's complex as hell. But but what he's doing is he's become graceful as a musician, so that the music just flows through him. A little like the compassion can flow through us at times. And I'm, I've been reading a book, um, I've been reading, looking at a book about Christian mysticism. And so one of the poems that I was reading is, What is Grace? And the poem goes, What is grace? I ask God. And this is from St. John of the Cross. What is grace? I asked, the, I asked God. And God said, all that happens. All that happens. That's a, that's a Christian paraphrase for being with what is. <laughs> and so, so God said, all that happens. And then God added, when I looked perplexed, God said, could not lovers say that every moment in their beloved's arms was grace? That's a good, good quote from God, right? <laughs> could, could not lovers say that every moment in their beloved arms was grace? And then God goes on to say, existence is my arms. Though I well understand how one can turn away from me until the heart has wisdom. That's, that's a profound Buddhist teaching coming from God and St. John of the Cross. <laughs> In my humble opinion. <laughs> but really beautiful, you know, existence is my arms. You know, that reality that we're here at all is grace. And it's true, and we all know it, at least sometimes, that just being here, just to be alive, is grace and is magical and is mysterious and in my often language is totally wild that we're here and we're alive and we can talk about the fact that we're even here and alive and that we're averse at times, right? Because that's part of being alive. And so practice always brings up a very deep question, which is, what are we doing here? What are we doing here at the retreat? What is practice? And one of the ways I reflect, consider, contemplate practice is we're discovering reality. We're discovering the Dharma, and right, and a very common translation of Dharma is truth. We're waking up to the truth of who and what we are. And part of what we are is part of that grace that flows through reality. <clears throat> and one of my favorite Buddhist quotes that I use often, so if you've sat with me, you've probably heard it, uh, 
comes from Dogen, Zen teacher, who said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Like, and this is, in my opinion, what we're doing here. We're studying reality. We are reality. We're studying the self. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to wake up with all beings. And that quote is really so clearly points at, in this very simple way, what we're doing here. And you, you, the first line, I think you would all agree, we're studying the self, right? We're studying what happens in your seat, right? And meeting each of you, each of us, is studying what happens right here. Body, heart, mind. We're paying attention. We're being aware of this experience, this living experience. <clears throat> and what Dogen starts to point us to it, what happens as we start to pay attention. He says, to study the self is to forget the self. And I'll do a Eugene translation. Instead of to, to forget the self, we could say to let go of the self, to not be so bound to our idea about who and what we are, but to start to discover the breadth or depth or mystery of who and what we are, which isn't limited by our general or usual sense of self. And then he goes on to say, he says, to forget or let go of the self is to become enlightened by all things. It also is sometimes translated as to forget the self is to become intimate with all things to become intimate with all things. And I love both translations, so that's why I throw both in when I teach. Because I, I, I love awakening is part of what we're doing here. We're waking up to who and what we are. And the potential of human reality that the Buddha discovered some 2,600 years ago, and he then realize that this was available to all human beings, regardless of, at his time, class or gender or race or economic status. He, he said, oh, this is available to him. And he, let, and he, had to be, um, he had to be cajoled a little bit about some of that, but he got it. And he let in people, and he let everybody into his sangha, even though they weren't part of the, the um, hierarchy of the Brahmin hierarchy or the warrior hierarchy or the merchant hierarchy. All the way down to the untouchables, he let them in his sangha, right? Because those were the, the prejudices of his time were based on those classes. And, um, and I just love the... Um, the idea of us waking up together, but also this idea of to let go of the self is to become intimate with all things. And that's really part of what we're doing here in the absolute simplicity of being with things as they are, moment 
by moment by moment by moment. We're learning how to become intimate with life itself, with a body, with a breathing, with being uncomfortable, with being fine, with thinking and thoughts and all kinds of ideas and beliefs and thinking they're real and then can't even remember them, you know, three hours later or something. <laughs> and, and, and we're learning to get more intimate with the human experience instead of just being mesmerized by the human experience or intoxicated with the human experience. And so we're learning to be ourselves in a very full way. <clears throat> and that's why I love that he starts and says, study the Buddha way is to study the self. Because in Zen, uh, one of the other things they say is uh, practice is being yourself all the way to the end. Being yourself all the way to the end. And it's so important. You can't, you can't do mindfulness if you're not real. I hope that makes sense. You can't do mindfulness. It won't work. If I sit here and I'm real, and then I can be mindful of what's here. But if I'm sitting here and I feel like shit, and I keep saying, oh, no, you feel great, Eugene. You're fine. Don't believe that. Fuck, I'm just pissed. I don't want to. You know, you, you can't, I can't do it if I pretend I'm feeling happy. It won't work. It's the reality that leads to more understanding and to a deeper understanding of what reality is. <clears throat> so, so learning to be ourselves means we start where we are, right here, wherever that might be, at any sitting. And then we can use the skillful means of being with the body and breathing to begin to collect ourselves collect our attention, collect our consciousness a bit so that we can recognize what's here in thoughts and feelings and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and sights and the whole human experience. <clears throat> and of course, if we start with the familiar, it begins to reveal the depth but the paradox of this is that a lot of the familiar is difficult or uncomfortable or um, is called dukkha in Buddhist terms. And anybody not know what dukkha means? I just want to check. Please raise your hand. If you, thank you. Dukkha is the Pali word for suffering. And suffering or dis-ease or dissatisfaction, these are all different kinds of dukkha. And dukkha is a great word because it's so broad, it's so big. Meaning your dukkha, if, if somebody's trying to kill you, that's dukkha. That's like serious dukkha. And if you're sitting here and the bell isn't rung and you have to go to the bathroom, that's dukkha also. It's, you know, it's kind of normal dukkha, and it's not life-threatening generally dukkha, but, but it's dukkha. And so it starts to see the uncomfortableness that is inherent in human life as not just being a bad thing, 
but part of what human life is about or part of what happens for humans and maybe all animals have some level of dukkha. And so the difficulty and the dukkha paradoxically is what awakens us or opens us to the grace of reality and the beauty of reality which we can realize even in the middle of dukkha. This is the paradox, right? Dukkha, the four, the four noble truths that there's dukkha, there's suffering, there's a cause to suffering, there's freedom or cessation of suffering, and there's a path that leads to cessation. And one of the things that people forget is, oh, they're connected. Dukkha, cause of dukkha, end of dukkha. You don't, get to, you don't get to the end of dukkha without dukkha. <laughs> it's part of the deal. And it's not that you're doing it wrong. And that, that's the best thing I can say to anybody. It's not that you're doing it wrong or you've made a mistake. And if you, di- if you did it right, there would be no dukkha. That's not the Buddhist understanding. Dukkha is part of human reality. And it doesn't mean we don't want to do everything we can to respond to dukkha, respond skillfully, and, and uh, release whatever dukkha we can release. But it, it doesn't mean that's the end of dukkha. The end of dukkha is through dukkha. And here, here's a story that I have just read. Um, um, how many people here have read Tattoos on the Heart? A few people, yeah. Great. It's one of my favorite books. So, And he's got a new book out, Greg Boyle, who's a Jesuit priest and a very cool guy. Um, and he worked, has worked a lot, spent a, a, most of his adult life working with gangs in L.A., and so, and but he and he's um, with them, and as part of their camaraderie, he's started a business called Homeboy Industries, and that does a lot of good work, and and helps um, people who are sometimes uh, gang members who are trying to get out of that life, create a new life together with other gang members, often working with gang members who are part of opposing gangs. And it's, it's very amazing what he does. And anyhow, so Greg Boyle is a human being and he has, he's, was diagnosed with leukemia. He was in the hospital and he heard one of the people who'd been part of Homeboy uh, had a bad accident, a seriously bad accident. And he, and he was in, being brought into the hospital that uh, Greg Boyle was being treated in. And so Greg wanted to go down and see him in the emergency room or in the I- ICU, intensive care, yeah. And he says, yeah, he said he's, that Greg Boyle said he wasn't a, ho- a stranger to hospital horrors. Nothing surprises or startles me much anyway, having seen human bodies rearranged every way, which, every which way. But then he goes to see this guy who's one of his friends and students, we could say. Um, and he goes to see Bird, is the, the man's nickname. 
and uh, it takes my breath away. Virtually every bone in his body is broken. Like virtually every bone in his body. Both his legs are suspended in casts, held together by an amazing array of pins. He's immobile, unable to speak, with IVs everywhere. I've never seen a body so devastated or dismantled as the one lying before me. His eyes look startled when he sees me. They bloom and come alive, right, in their friendship and camaraderie and, and love, really. And he says, there is no panic in them, only a steady sense, the ground of all being. His gaze locks onto mine and my eyes glisten, right? And then he goes on and talks to him and he's telling him how you're going to make it, you'll be okay. You know, he's doing what any of us would do if we have a friend who's in trouble, like, you'll be okay. And, and, uh, and he says a prayer, he asks to say a prayer and puts his hand on him, says a prayer and uh, anoints him with the sacrament, an oil used for the sacrament of the sick. And then when he does, um, Bird gestures with his right hand, indicating a desire to write. And um, uh, these are the, some of the few bones that are okay in his body are his fingers, right? And so he gives him a pad of paper, and after a lot of labor, Bird writes this. He says, but you, and this is in capital Y-O-U, but you, G, Greg, but you, G, how are you, capital Y-O-U, how are you doing? <laughs> right? That's what he says to, to Greg Boyle. Um, and um, and, uh, and uh, Greg Boyle says, I began to cry. Anyway, I could cry reading it. Uh, I hold my face in my hands, powerless in the presence of such soaring generosity. Right? And then something happens there, some alarm goes off, you know, on the machines that are keeping this man okay at the moment. And uh, all kinds of things happen. Greg's trying to figure out what's going on. And the guy writes, says, don't worry, I'm blowing up now. <laughs> and he jokes, he jokes with him from this, you know, very difficult situation that Bird is in. That Bird is in. And then Greg Boyle says, as I leave, I say, all I know is I sure love you a lot, Philip, using his given name. And he makes one last panicky wave for pen and paper, and he writes, I love you more. He writes, and Greg Boyle says, the divine always wants to be liberated. The divine always wants to be liberated. And so uh, partly I'm reading that to point to the potential for dukkha revealing the end of dukkha, not by getting away from it, but right through it is possible. And so as we practice here, we've been working with our bodies just to get here and to collect ourselves, to compose ourselves, 
to remember ourselves. They're all words used in the same way in Buddhism. Remember, collect, compose. To bring ourselves together, to really be here moment by moment by moment. And, uh, and part of what we're also learning about, and we're hopefully expanding the instructions as we go, to really learn more about not just our body and heart, but our mind. And to start to see what, what is mind? What is it, what is it that, that is mindful? Right? Because we, we use that word a lot here, mindful. The, the word in Pali originally is sati, and it could really be translated equally mindful, which was a much earlier translation uh, to, to awareness. And that's what we're doing here is we're learning how to be, we're learning how to have a mind that is full of reality, not pushing it away, not grabbing onto it, but open to each moment and the simplicity and sometimes the complexity of each moment. And of course, mind uh, doesn't always have a good, good, get good publicity, right? There's Annie Lamott, the writer, she said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. You know, and you know, if you have a mind like that, you know what those minds are like. They're always doing something you don't want them to be doing. And in Buddhism, it's what she's pointing at is small mind, right? There's small mind and big mind sometimes they're talked about. And one of the things Dural was pointing us at is one of the manifestations of small mind called the hindrances. Um, and because we really want to look at our relationship to our mind as well as our body and heart. We want to see, oh, who, what, what's true, right? And just I'll be very personal because if you have a mind like mine, you don't want to believe it all the time. I mean, my mind will make up anything. This is, this, this is I'm being honest with you. My mind makes up shit all the time about reality that it that knows nothing about. I mean, really, I could make up stuff about any of you. <laughs> really. And, and it's not even me. It's just my mind doing it. I mean, luckily, I have enough practice. I don't really believe it. But it'll say, you know, especially when I, you know, if I'm sitting along retreat, I used to watch one thing because I would really... In the old days, you really kept your eyes down. You didn't look at anybody. You never made eye contact. You looked down. So mostly you know everybody through their socks. <laughs> and I would watch my mind. Oh, look at those. They're wearing those socks again. God, maybe they can't afford any others. They've only got one pair. They're going to wear them for 30 days. So that one pair, wow. I'm glad I'm not sitting too close to them. You know, this is just my mind. God, you know, I'm trying to be aware of my body, my breath, and the mind just will do whatever it wants sometimes. So, and you'll hear you hear something in what I just said. You hear the comparing mind also, like, and you may have noticed your mind comparing things, 
And it's really helpful not to believe the comparing, but to see this function of mind that was called comparing mind. Because if you're like me, I mean, I used to compare how long people were sitting compared to me, because I was going to sit longer than them, however long they sat. And it didn't matter how bad my knee hurt, I was sitting longer than that. And so I would sit longer. And, you know, it's, you know, it's not a bad thing to know how to do, but it's like, oh, my God, do I have to do this for the rest of my life, sit longer than everybody else? That's, that's like, ridiculous. That, that's not freedom, right? And, so, and, then, and then there's other kinds of comparing. You may notice yourself comparing what people are eating compared to what you're eating. Right as you go through the line, especially if they take what you want before you get there, right? That's that can be serious dukkha at times here, <laughs> retreat. But also, you might notice you're comparing this sitting with the last sitting, right? And the last sitting was that was a good sitting. <laughs> this sitting stinks. How do I get back to that sitting? Right? Okay. Some people are nodding. And and it's and it's dukkha. And you're just seeing the mind creating dukkha. And that's what minds do sometimes if we believe them. One of the beautiful things about being aware of the mind is you don't have to believe it. You can just see, oh, this is what minds do sometimes. And then the other piece that was in what I said was the judging mind. And, and I was talking about judging other people's socks, but, but really, anybody here have any self-judgment? Right? Ever? Right? Like, I mean, you know. And really, if I could do one thing, really, if I could really do one thing, I would love to take away your self-judgment. Because it's not true. And I mean this quite sincerely. It's one of the beautiful things about the Dalai Lama. His Holiness didn't understand self-judgment when he first heard it from Westerners. He didn't get it. He's like, what? He said, why would you ever think that way? Right? But of course, he was raised in a different time, place, culture, world. Right? And we live in a very individualistic, competitive world, right? And part of the way you get better is you do the right thing, the good thing, the way it's supposed to be done, the something. And if you don't do it, it's your fault, right? And so we all grow up with a lot of self-judgment that is often um, uh, not just... Maybe we get it some from our families, from our parents, but also we can get it from the culture, or um, and especially if we're in, uh, uh, you know, if we're in uh, a subordinate culture. That's not the right word, but I'm looking. If we're not the dominant culture, there's a lot of judgment from the dominant cultures on cultures that aren't supposedly dominant. 
right? I mean, and so there's a lot of that that just happens in the atmosphere. It's not even done directly at times, but it's in the atmosphere of how the whole culture is set up is a certain kind of judgment. And part of what we do, wherever we get it, we inherit, inherit and we um, inhale self-judgment and put it on ourselves. And it's not true. That was, what the, that was the first thing the Dalai Lama ever said. He said, oh, it's just not true, right? If it was true, I, I would say, yes, you have to deal with that. But it's just not true. The judgment is not true, you know? And of course, you could have judgment no matter what, you know? And I know, uh, you know, and it could be if you're male or female, if you're black or brown or right, white, or if you're rich or po poor, or if you're uh, tall or short, or if you're thin or you're round. I mean, the judgment can come any which way, right? That we're not the right way, that there's something wrong with us. And, and it's just not true. So, and then of course, then there's spiritual judgment. Oh, if, if I sat six hours straight, then I could get this. Or, or if, I, if I just did sitting and walking for the next 20 years, I'd wake up, but I can't do it. And so this judgment comes. And so I'm just trying to point to it so you can recognize it when it's here, so you can be aware of it instead of believing it. That's the key. <clears throat> and so part of what I'm talking about is how we relate to our minds, whether it's the comparing mind or the judging mind, <clears throat> and it's why the first foundation of mindfulness is so helpful because the first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And one of the benefits of being mindful of the body is it takes us here into this very simple, direct, immediate aliveness that's sitting in each seat. And it takes us out of our mind in the usual way. It's not just an idea. You can, you can be aware of the body just by feeling it. I always think I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. You can be aware of the sensuality of a body sitting here. Because you feel things, like just now, just feel your body what it's touching the cushion or the chair or the bench or whatever you're on, right? That's a sen sensate experience. It's sensual. And we can feel it. We can feel it directly, not as an idea, but quite directly. And then we're starting to mingle our awareness with the direct experience. This is part of what it means to remember or recollect or, or to... Uh, to start to unify body and mind. They become one instead of two. We don't know the body from a distance. We know it from the immediacy of the liveness that we can feel and sense.
And so this supports our working with the mind because we have a basis of reality that is not just being in our mind. Like people often talk about not being in their bodies, they're in their minds, and that, that happens. And, but, but in fact, here's one of the great paradoxes about the brain, because people tend to associate mind with brain, right? And definitely scientists who, who are talking a lot about mindfulness these days associate mind with brain. But the brain is part of the body. <laughs> it's totally a weird thing, but it's part of the body. You could feel the brain, actually. And that takes a very sophisticated uh, samadhi, but it's possible to sense every part of the body, actually. And as we get more and more unified, collected, we remember, become whole, we can know this physicality quite directly, quite immediately. And it's beautiful. One of the teachers I love to sit with is the Venerable Analyo, who teaches the Satipatthana. And the first thing he does is establish uh, uh, mindfulness of the body in this very full way. And, um, and, and, and you, you, you just spend this time just sensing and being aware of every part of the body, right? First with the skin and then with the flesh and then through the bones. And, and, and then from there you go to the elements of the body, the earth, earth fire, uh, earth, water, fire, air, and then you go to the breath. And, you, and that he always wants one to establish this embodied uh, awareness, embodied awareness as, as how you begin mindfulness of breathing. And so, and then he goes on to the other foundations, which includes the third foundation, which is mindfulness of mind. <clears throat> and Conventionally, the mind is thought of as mental processes, right? We think and we are, can be logical or sometimes we're even rational and uh, analytic or, and, you know, it's functional. And, uh, and the mind is a faculty of intellect. Yeah? And you might watch your mind. You might spend one whole sitting and just being aware of your mind. Fascinating to do. Because sometimes your mind might even stop, but that's so rare. Because usually it just does its thing, and you can watch it do its thing. You don't have to believe it or identify with it. Many of us are identified with our thoughts, and so we think that's where reality is. And you know, thoughts are have their relative level of reality, and they're good, and some thoughts are beautiful. I mean, somebody thought of Spirit Rock. <laughs> really. And that's how it happened. And so thoughts, I'm not saying thoughts are bad, but, but uh, the thought of Spirit Rock came out of somebody's heart, actually. <laughs> really. And it was a love of the Dharma that created Spirit Rock, not just the thought, oh, let's build a center. Hmm. 
Um, so I'm just trying to cover some ground here about mind. So um, uh, in Buddhism, sometimes the mind is talked about and the thinking function of mind, thinking, planning, commentating, talking. You ever notice your mind talks to you? Tells you what to do, what not to do, when you should do it, shouldn't do it. Even when it's wrong, it'll tell you what it thinks. <laughs> There's a word in, in Buddhism I like very much called papancha. Papancha is proliferation of mind or discursive mind. And it's just the mind will just lights up and it goes. And it goes as if it's talking about something for real, which sometimes it starts with something for real. But So it's, it's good to see, be aware. Often we feel lost in papancha. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Buddha Dasa, one of the great uh, Thai teachers of the last century, he was asked to describe modern civilization. And he did it in three words. Lost in thought. Lost in thought. Because thought's just part of the whole deal. The, the bigger question, which of course was inherent in what I asked from Dogen, when we study the self, which is, who's thinking anyways? And who's thinking if we can't stop thinking? Right? And what if the thoughts aren't us? Right? Because that's a very common conventional understanding of thought. The thoughts are me. They're my thoughts. <laughs> if they're your thoughts, why can't you stop them? <laughs> or why can't you give me two of them? And I'll, I'll keep them for a while. <clears throat> so the third, I'll go a little further, the third foundation of, uh, of uh, mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. And of course, really what's pointed at in Buddhism is mind-heart, right? Because the mindfulness of mind includes thoughts and ideas and beliefs and moods and emotions and mental states and the quality of mind, and the atmosphere of mind. And the knowing the mind-heart can be all different ways. Your mind-heart might be relaxed, or open, or tight, or have an emotion. It might be an angry mind-heart, or a wanting mind-heart, or a scared mind and heart. Or it might be peaceful, or lustful, or at ease. Albert Einstein said, the intuitive mind is a wonderful gift. The rational mind is a faithful servant. It's odd, he said in the West, how we have come to honor the servant and ignore the gift. And so mind, heart, the word in, in uh, Pali, and I believe Sanskrit also, is chitta, chitta. And chitta can be, when, when you're looking at the third foundation of mindfulness, it's talking about chitta. And chitta can be translated as mind 
or it can be translated as heart. And I believe somebody said something or pointed at in, in um, the Asian culture at the time of the Buddha, the mind wasn't here. The mind was here. It was in the torso. I always find that so fascinating that the mind has devolved up away from the heart. Because it's so much more beautiful to really feel, see, know the understanding of the heart is a complete understanding. It's not just an intellectual understanding, although it does it includes intelligence. It can be totally intelligent, the heart and the heart center. One of my teachers, Ryokan, Japanese monk, he said, the Buddha, the Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. He says, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? And so he's pointing at what I believe Albert Einstein was pointing at, what Albert Einstein called the intuitive mind. <laughs> so Ryokan's pointing at the big mind, the mind of awakening, the mind of fullness of mind, openness of mind emptiness of mind. And I love Venerable Analyo, who always, uh, when he writes about mindfulness, he talks about, oh, it's not just about the objects. Mindfulness is a presence of mind that gets established. And then we know everything from that. And I believe in that way, when we establish this open presence of mindfulness, that each moment is a doorway to reality, to understanding, to waking up. And it's what I often appreciate about not having to fix things but we go right through things and they reveal more of reality by our presence and our beingness of being here. And so we don't do the liberation. Like if you're angry, I don't ever try to get rid of my anger. I want to be aware of it. I don't want to just act on it uh, unconsciously but I want to be aware of it and I want to feel it because it has a, a somatic, kinesthetic, energetic component to it. It's an emotion, but here's where body, heart, and mind are all one thing. 
right? And I'm angry and there's a lot of energy and feeling and, and I have a lot of great ideas about why I should be angry and what's wrong with whoever or whatever I'm angry about. So I'm aware of the ideas and the beliefs, but really I want to come to the energetic, kinesthetic, somatic aliveness that's here that we end up calling anger. And then as I sit with that reality, not pushing it away and not grabbing it, when I sit with it, it, starts, it has the potential to self-liberate. And, and it will. Just will. And it doesn't mean that I've done the right thing, but I haven't done the wrong thing. I haven't tried to hold on to it or push it away. And so then reality begins to reveal the potential for reality. Reality, meaning my simple conventional anger, starts to reveal deeper dimensions of reality that include the not anger, not scared, not anything, open, relaxed, free of being identified with body, heart, or mind. And to not be identified with body, heart, and mind doesn't mean to push them away or deny them or repress them. It means to stay present with the living experience of body, heart, and mind. And that's where the Dharma reveals itself. And the Buddha talks about it in this way. He says, luminous is this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not understand, so they do not cultivate this mind. Luminous is this mind, this very mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way truly understands, so for them, there is cultivation of this mind. You know, it's the whole Dharma right there for us to sit with, reflect with, contemplate and practice and discover for ourselves because as the Buddha said, we each have the possibility of realizing this luminosity that's sitting right here. You know, I always like to throw in questions now, like uh, where does your mind come from in your experience right now? Where's your mind? Not what is your mind aware of, but where's your mind itself? And, you know, sometimes you might even have think you know, and maybe you do. You can tell me later, because I'd love to know where my mind is. <laughs> or I could use the same kind of questioning with awareness, right? Is anybody here who's not aware right now? Right? You're, you're all aware right now. Where's the awareness itself? Not what are you aware of, but where's the awareness itself? 
I, I, I love looking to try and see where is the awareness? I will finish with a quote from Suzuki Roshi. <clears throat> uh, let me see if I will. There's another quote I could, I have two, two great quotes to end with. Which one do you want? <laughs> both. Okay, I'm going to give you both. Here's Suzuki Roshi. He says that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. To experience this is to have a religious feeling. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. Just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of water. To speak of waves, waves apart from water or water apart from waves is delusion. Water and waves are one. Big mind and small mind are one. Whatever you experience is an expression of big mind. Pretty great. And then this is a more poetic version from Emily Dickinson of the same theme. She says, the mind, the mind is wider than the sky. The mind is wider than the sky. For put them side by side, the one the other will include with ease and you beside. The mind is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will include, with ease and you beside. The mind is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. The mind is just the weight of God. The mind is just the weight of God. For lift them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from sound. Let's sit for a moment, please.
you for your kind attention. We have a period of walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.